Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. This is the second part of this bonus episode with Gary Kent. These episodes were recorded over one sitting in Gary's study down the end of his garden, so please forgive the occasional noise of birds tweeting and trains rumbling by. In this part two, we deal with one of the other causes that has defined Gary's life, that of the Iraqi Kurds. In many ways, this episode is a history lesson. It certainly was For me, I was born after the first Gulf War and I was 11 years old at the start of the second. Gary tells his view on the evasion of Iraq and what it meant for the Iraqi Kurds. In this episode, I also touch on a few things that I was politically conscious of. In particular, I talk about the parliamentary votes in 2014 and 2015 to grant permission for the RAF to bomb ISIS in Iraq and then Syria. And I think about those who voted against that decision, particularly the 2014 vote. But I talk about it with the handbrake on, trying hard after all those hours of discussions not to let my emotions show. Even after the massacre of the Yazidis on Mount Sinjar, some members of parliament voted against the use of military means to prevent further spread of ISIS across Iraq and Kurdistan, knowing full well what would happen if ISIS continued their brutal campaign across those regions. And that stuff stays with you. In the end, I come to the conclusion that the debate around military intervention has become so dogmatic and black and white that that leads people to standing by when they have the means to prevent genocide. And the debate around military intervention and humanitarian intervention really needs to change in our political discourse. Gary, as ever, is full of lessons from his life experience. And I think his experience tells us a lot about how to approach foreign policy and conflict resolution. I'm really glad I got to share his story and I hope you enjoy it. And finally, make sure you listen to the end of this podcast to hear a lovely little epilogue about some of his other achievements in Parliament. Here's Gary Kent, part two. Hope you enjoy. So, Irish work started in about 85 and... You know, it was sort of petering out around about 2005, uh, 6. Um, but still, 20 years of your life uh, yeah. committed to this to this cause. Um, but I guess, you know, there were, there were two, and I was saying this earlier, there were kind of two conflicts that shaped your political life, two people, the conflict of 
in Northern Ireland, the British and the Irish, and the conflict in Iraq, and the treatment of Iraqi Kurdistan, your relationship with the Kurdish people and the Kurdish solidarity movement. Yeah, I mean... When did that begin? Well, I mean... Uh, that sounds too much of a simplification. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I became immersed in Northern Ireland and it was a daily activity of one sort or another. You know, there were lots of meetings, we organised events in the Commons, we showed films, we got involved in controversies over the Michael Collins film, we, we argued for an inquiry into Bloody Sunday, we took on uh, that part of the left that had a sneaking regard for the IRA, and I remember sort of once, uh, I used to go to Tony Ben's house. Um, I was very friendly with his editor and um, we, we went out for uh, pub meals and so on and had chats. And um, I remember we, we sort of had a drink, Tony Ben and Ruth and uh, me, in the Sports and Social Club, uh, Coke. And I was involved in the campaign against kneecapping and I asked for his opinion and... Uh, to my surprise, he said, well, you know, the army has to discipline people. And I thought, the army? Oh, the Irish Republican army. And I think that he then criticised me and the ILP for having changed our minds about Ireland. Well, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, if you're not prepared to be revisionist, then you're prepared to be, you know, just to live in the past. And, and Tony Benn, to his credit or otherwise, has changed his mind about quite a number of things. I mean, from having been, if you like, the Peter Mandelson in the 50s to being the, the leader of the, the hard left in the Labour Party and nearly getting the deputy leadership in 1981. I don't mind that people change. I mean, if, you, if you're active in politics and you can't sort of examine your own sort of ideas and make sure, I've done this regularly, just check that you are still what you think you are and you know, that consciously sort of tried to um, make sure that your perspectives are fresh and relevant. And uh, I went through a lot, a lot of that soul searching. Uh, I remember very much being indebted to a book by Donald Sassoon called A Century of Socialism, which examined the trajectory of the European uh, socialist, uh, social democratic and communist parties throughout the 20th century. I learned a lot from that. And his conclusion was that he was a, an ethical socialist. In other words, socialism wasn't a, a city on the hill, a new form of production, something different but something that's a continuation of what we have, which is more civilised and it tames capitalism. I mean, capitalism is, for now, as far as I could tell, the only show in town, but there are different types of capitalism. And uh, the job of a reformist party like the Labour Party is to make sure that it serves the people. It's an amoral system left to itself, and it's chaotic, and it's anarchic and unplanned, and that's its power and its weakness at the same time. Uh, the Labour Party constitution of 1995, which was approved by members, got rid of the old Clause 4, which was a clumsy compromise that was written to distinguish the Labour Party from communism but had phrases that could be interpreted in different ways. 
Uh, if you look at it very carefully, it doesn't say what its supporters think it said, but nonetheless, it was an aspiration. So I was very struck by, I, I was initially critical of Tony Blair, but realized that he had the chops when it came to Northern Ireland. And then I'm one of the few people on the left who think that he was right in his approach to Iraq. And I know that sounds strange, so let me try to uh, justify this. And so back in 2002, uh, I took part in uh, the American State Department organizes something called the International Visitor Leadership Program. And uh, I went on it. And this was three weeks traveling around America at their expense, Washington, Seattle, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, New York, and Iowa City, in my case. And it was to study the formation of American foreign policy. How, what are the drivers of it, which come from different parts of the country, those that face the Pacific and those that face Europe, those who come from Europe, those who come from Asia. And um, this was October, November 2002, so 20 years ago, and it was in the run-up to uh, the invasion of Iraq. And um, I remember sort of, yeah, we talked a lot about Iraq, and I was, I have to say, fairly sceptical. But um, I thought about this. There was no persuasion by then to take a particular line, but I thought about it more and more. I used to go to the press bar at the time, and me and one journalist were the only people in favour of uh, invading Iraq. And the reason that I was in favour was because of my historic attachment to the Kurds. And, and, and also... I, I thought it was pretty obvious that there were weapons of mass destruction. There certainly had been. And uh, I remember later sort of meeting somebody who was to become the Iraqi prime minister who said in Baghdad, well, yeah, of course he had them. He just flew them to Syria. I had no idea if that's true. But nonetheless, I came to approve of the invasion because of those sympathies with the Kurds. Uh, Harry Barnes, on the other hand, who'd actually done his national service in Basra in the 50s on trains as a clerk, uh, he opposed the invasion on every single occasion, and we differed, and that's fine. But afterwards, we discussed what we should do about it, because the Stop the War movement had failed to stop the war. And so, just he said, just as after we lost the... Uh, referendum on the Commonwealth in 1935. You don't keep banging on about the same thing. You, you, you know, the situation has moved on. Life has moved on. And what we agreed, I remember, was that we should apply the lessons that we'd learned from Northern Ireland and where we had tried to find forces that would sort of civilize uh, the situation, that would bring working people together. And that led us to team up with the UK representative of the emerging trade union movement in Iraq. Now, that had been, in the 50s, the biggest trade union movement between Europe and Australia, and I think the 1959 May Day March had a million people on it. That then led to forming uh, Labour Friends of Iraq, and uh, we wrote the first Solidarity article that was in The Observer in 2003. And then that led to us getting sponsorship from Unison, 
and taking a, a senior labor movement delegation to Kurdistan, which was the only safe place we could go to at the time, um, in 2006. And I mean, I, I'd never been to the Middle East before. Um, and I found that there was a complete disconnect between the views of much of the left and the wider public here and there. So we went, for instance, to uh, the Prime Minister's office in Sulaymaniyya. Uh, there were two Prime Ministers. It was divided at the time. And on the doors outside, there were pictures of Bush and Blair. And they were complimentary. <laughs> I thought, well, this is strange. And I remember one of the trade union leaders with us. We were arguing a toss about the invasion. And I was saying, well, this, that, and the other. And then he heard exactly the same from all the Kurdish leaders to leave mayor. And he thought, do you know that? <laughs> and, you know, there was this disconnect. And, and what you have to realize is that um, the Kurds almost to a man or woman, I mean, routinely refer to the liberation of Iraq, uh, which they'd had two of, uh, for reasons I'll explain. And so, you know, and I also found Kurdistan uh, very magnetic. It's a beautiful place. I mean, the mountains and the rivers, the vast panoramas between cities, which were quite exciting at the beginning, pretty rough but now pretty cosmopolitan. And I then helped form the all-party parliamentary group. Uh, I'm still the secretary. Uh, I've taken, I think, 15 delegations of MPs there, and I've been there 35 times, and I've been to Baghdad three times and nearly got killed in 2008 by a mortar into the green zone. And we met lots of people, we had lots of discussions, reports, and we've sort of helped to uh, fire, to drive a growing uh, British-Kurdish relationship. And, and until recently, I was also a director of uh, the main university in uh, Kurdistan. So, I mean, I know the place quite well, and it's been a real eye-opener. Uh, to see things from their point of view. Let me just sort of be provocative, because what I could say, is by way of an experiment, is I can say that the Western intervention in Iraq was a great success. It wasn't formally endorsed by the UN, but it definitely uh, averted further genocide against the Kurds. Now, if I were to say that just out of nowhere... In your local labor branch, yeah, for example. People would jump down my throat and say, having me say the, uh, the intervention in Iraq was a great success, but I am referring to the 1991 intervention. Now, the reason I say that is that most people, I've met so many people, I've had almost daily conversations about Iraq, which have been quite painful uh, for the last 16 years. And this, you know, people of a, an older generation knew about Halabja, which I visited several times. Now, again, that sort of normally leads to blank stares. But Halabja, March the 16th, 1988, was a symbol of an industrial genocide by Saddam Hussein against the Kurds, in which about 200,000 people were killed overall. And on that particular day, the Iraqi Air Force dropped sarin gas on the town. 5,000 people were killed 
almost instantly. Many more were injured and remain injured, and I've met many of them uh, at meetings and in Halabja. And then the Kurds fled to the mountains. Uh, two million people fled to the mountains. This is a very small nation. Now five or six million, it was smaller then. And John Major, under pressure from the Kurds, people like Nadim Sahawi here, uh, people I know who are now the leadership in Kurdistan and maybe here as well, um, they put pressure on John Major. So did public opinion. If you read the parliamentary debates, if you look at the papers, I did a short history of this for Kurdistan 24, which is one of the main outlets. There was huge anger because it was also televised. So Charles Wheeler, um, actually Boris Johnson's former father-in-law, was really on our screens and it was horrible. So unusually and under pressure, John Major absolutely did the right thing. And um, and that is that he bucked the normal um, rules of international relations, which you don't intervene in a sovereign country, you don't get involved in a civil war. The Americans had, with a UN mandate, liberated Kuwait, which was occupied from August 1990 until um, maybe February, March uh, 1991. And they wanted to to leave, they wanted the troops to go back. They'd done their mission. John Major, however, persuaded them that they should stay with the British and the French, some of them should stay, and enforce a no-fly zone and a, a safe haven over the Kurdistan region. Now, that saved the Kurds. It preserved a semi-independent state, which then was in pole position after the liberation of Iraq in 2003 to dynamize itself and actually stabilize Iraq. But when you, so many people, they talk about Iraq and they are really only talking about 2003. And if you ignore the history, you ignore the context of history, then you're going to arrive at the wrong conclusions. My question was going to be, did the decision from the United States after the first Gulf War not to remove Saddam Hussein at that moment to withdraw after liberation of Kuwait, as well as the horrors of Rwanda and Bosnia, and then the successes of intervention in Kosovo and Sierra Leone, did these play into your views leading up to 2003? Are that you believe it was writing a wrong from the first Gulf War, and also a belief that liberal interventionism can work? And then second question, was your discussions with your boss at the time, um, Harry Barnes. What were your discussions before each of those votes where he opposed the war? And secondly, once the war started, how did his view differ to lots of the left? 
because for some it felt as if to be working alongside collaborators with the coalition so if the Iraqi trade unionists were working with the British uh, Americans they were seen as collaborators in a legal invasion did that weigh on your mind or Harry's mind as well so there's lots of questions bundled up and you can come take them one at a time. Yeah, well, there's quite a few. And so uh, the American decision uh, to end the um, fighting against Saddam was because they, they had achieved the aim, which was the uh, limited aim of the liberation of Kuwait. So they decided that it would breach the uh, remit that the UN had given them to go into Baghdad. In any case, I mean, after such a massive defeat, I mean, the assumption was that Saddam would fall. And it was just a miracle aided by a massive mistake by Norman Schwarzkopf, the American general who foolishly, naively um, allowed Saddam to fly helicopters. Um, he maintained for the purpose of uh, moving supplies and uh, he gave a reason. But anyway, they'd also, the Americans, the Voice of America, had uh, encouraged the Shia for the South and the Kurds in the North to rise up. And they did, uh, for their own reasons. I mean, the Kurds have obviously been looking at this for some time as to whether or not they could yeah, go further and consolidate their position. Unfortunately, the, the Shia in the South were left in the lurch and the Kurds in the North, um, they had great success. I mean, they took Kirkuk, they took other places, but then they were pushed back, partly because helicopters were allowed and they were bombing people in Kurdistan. I now focus on Kurdistan because I know less about what happened in the South, though a lot of people were killed. And and just to clear this up, there was a, a no-fly zone preventing Saddam troops from bombing the Kurdistan region and the southern Shia um, areas of Iraq, but helicopters could still be used for air superiority. Yeah, uh, and, and bombing and strafing. And, so, and they were. So that's why uh, the Kurds, after initial success, um, then fled. Uh, they left Erbil and Suleimania and other places, and uh, they, they went to the mountains. And their, their existence there was horrible. And they were dying. I mean, freezing conditions, no food, and um, the no-fly zone, which also involved some troops on the ground. I, I've known some of them. I became an NP. Uh, they were led to tell the villagers, don't worry, the, 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 the aircraft above are, are friendly. You don't need to worry. But then that allowed the Kurds to... Uh, develop their society. I mean, it was very poor. There were sanctions against uh, Iraq, which were then imposed against the Kurds, and Saddam imposed uh, sanctions against the Kurds. He also left uh, Kurdistan thinking that they wouldn't be able to cope because part of the problem that the Kurds face is essentially chauvinism or racism, which is they're stupid people who don't know how to look after themselves. Well, they did. And uh, although, you know, there, there were... There were still some uh, attacks by Saddam, but essentially they were protected by the no-fly zone for a further 12 years. Uh, yes, the interventions elsewhere had uh, emboldened my thinking. I'd instinctively for some time been opposed uh, to 
many Western actions, but I, I saw that this was the right thing to do. And um, I've lost my thread, but um, essentially, yes. What the, so the discussions, we, we didn't really discuss what he was going to vote for. I mean, that was up to him. And uh, But we certainly had a discussion about what to do next. And then this brought us into conflict with the Stop the War Coalition, uh, who who did argue that it was impossible in theory for an independent trade union movement to grow in conditions of an occupation. Well, uh, the occupation was soon uh, given official status, if you like, by the United Nations. And uh, it was possible, and it was happening. And uh, there were terrible. There was a terrible time when we we formed Labour Friends of Iraq, and the essential purpose of the organisation was to bring together people who'd had different opinions, and uh, people who had honourably supported the invasion, and people who had honourably opposed it. I mean, I remember, I think Sherry Blair said that this was one of those 51-49 decisions. And it wasn't easy. And I, I understood people who opposed uh, the invasion. I myself didn't go on the march on the 15th of February 2003 because I decided that that wasn't in my name. And I felt that there were too many people who were soft on Saddam because they felt that he was an anti-American, anti-imperialist, and they glossed over what had happened or they'd forgotten or neglected or sidelined his crimes of genocide against the Kurds, his dictatorship as well. Um, myself and Abdullah Musin, who was the international representative of the Iraqi Federation of Trade Unions, of which I am an honorary member, uh, but don't often get to branch meetings anymore, he and I wrote a review of a book by uh, Andrew Murray and Lindsay German, uh, sort of basically um, sort of how great we were. And we just tore them apart because they, they carried pictures in the book of these demonstrations of women in Baghdad against the war. But Abdullah speaks Arabic and he said, well, the posters, the placards were all in favor of Saddam. Uh, and I think that there was a great naivety, but there was a cause for lepra, which was, um, there was a man called, um, Hadi Sali. Now he was a communist party member, a printer. He'd been in exile. He actually went back to Iraq before, uh, the overthrow of Saddam and set about trying to reestablish the unions, which had had a clandestine existence, but had mainly been exiled. And uh, in January uh, 2005, he was um, murdered, tortured, garroted, burnt, shot by essentially um, Saddam's uh, goons, people from the Macabre, the secret police. And then by that time, you see the, the old, the remnants of the Saddam regime and uh, jihadists were starting to come together. And the last thing they wanted was a trade union movement that brought together Shias and Sunnis and Kurds. And that was a terrible thing. I mean, he'd been to the Commons, we'd had a meeting with him, there was outrage, but um, you're right, the significant elements of the Stop the War Coalition dismisses. Alex Klidikos, who was SWP guru, and on the committee said, oh, what was all this hullabaloo about a communist collaborator? 
they they were very sore because there'd been an attempt by them in October 2004, when essentially Labour Friends of Iraq was founded at the Labour Party conference, which was quite an important fringe meeting. Uh, and they they wanted to get troops out. Here we go again. Same old thing. They wanted to get troops out passed by the Labour conference, and they felt that they were going to do it. But they didn't reckon with the um, disagreement of the Iraqi trade union movement. And uh, Abdullah? Uh, basically said, look, we, we didn't invite you in. They'd oppose the war. But we want to say about when you go, because if you go prematurely, then you'll leave a vacuum, and that will be filled by people who wish to murder uh, people. You know, people who were shooting electoral canvases like dogs in the street. It was a very, very sort of moving image that I remember from that, and who killed Hadi Sally, and who were killing other people. And the important thing was uh, that whether or not you agreed with the invasion, yeah. uh, Iraqis were then trying to get their country back. How angry did it make you at the time? Because I was 11 years old when the invasion happened. I, I was too young to be aware of the what it meant and the and the consequences. But thinking back, I completely understand how someone in good conscience could be against the invasion. Once the invasion has taken place, you're like, right, I want this to succeed. I want there to be a democratic Iraq in the future. Therefore, I should put all my weight into supporting... Democrat, democratic socialist, trade unionists in Iraq. To me, that seems that would just be the natural root of things. Do you think the reason why that mass mobilization of the anti-war movement didn't follow the path that you laid out afterwards was because then why do you think that was? Do you think it was because it was so controlled by their stop the war was so controlled by the Socialist Workers Party and a certain kind of faction or anti-imperialists that it, the broad movement of the million people in the streets didn't filter into a an openly pro-democratic future for Iraq campaign? Well, um... <clears throat> There were demonstrations all over the world, and uh, stopping the invasion uh, was seen by very good people as being the most important thing. Don't start something that's going to lead to death. Um, but it happened, and um, and then a new situation is created. And to be fair, although the Stop the War Coalition toyed with the idea of supporting the insurgency, and we exposed that, uh, they tried to maintain they hadn't, but trade union leader Mick Ricks uh, resigned and uh, damned them for having uh, been complicit and, and uh, for having sort of gone along with the murder yeah. of trade. There's a isn't there's an infamous letter, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, which mentions um, stop the war endorsing opposition to the invasion by any means necessary. Yeah, um, you can read into that. 
Really? Look, I mean, I, I, I nursed it. I, I mean, I, I found that uh, in the Morning Star and, and gave it some uh, prominence. And uh, that led to a lot of people having questions. Uh, Harry left the Labour Against the War um, group uh, because they they wouldn't get with the, the new situation. I mean, to be fair, uh, hard left unions like uh, the RMT, uh, the Fire Brigades Union, um, actually did some very good things. I mean, the Fire Brigades Union drove uh, a couple of fire tenders all the way to a bill. Uh, the RMT was supplying computers, I think. Uh, I remember, what was the leader of the RMT, Bob? Uh, anyway, I went to see him in his office. Well, several of us did. Uh, Unison, uh, they, they they were organizing training for trade unionists in uh, in Kurdistan, and they sponsored us to go. The TUC set up a solidarity committee. So there was a break, and, and good people were saying, look, however we got here, and yeah, let's disagree, and we got a motion through the conference, instead of troops out being passed, uh, a motion I helped write, and old Harry and Jack Straw and the National Executive went through and basically said, "Let's work together. Let's we have our differences. Let's respect those differences, but let's work together to support trade unions and women's groups and Iraqi Democrats." And and there has been some success because um, the material solidarity petered out. These things happen because you know other things will appear, uh, but. Those hard left uh, unions did the right thing, and that's a good sign. Uh, and then, you know, the problem with Iraq is that it had been a political desert for decades. I mean, you couldn't have uh, political activity that went against Saddam. I mean, if you read um, the Republic of Fear, <laughs> it says that there were several levels of conversation, and you would only say what you thought when you were absolutely certain that nobody would report you. Because, I mean, children were being asked to report on their parents who were then taken away. So, yeah, political activity was dangerous. And then all of a sudden, uh, you then have the lid is lifted off and you have the long suppressed, uh, suppressed tensions between Shias and Sunnis come to the boil. There's a civil war. Then you have... Um, what Tony Blair warned about what might happen if there hadn't been an invasion was that Emma Truss, uh, Emma Sky, who uh, was actually an official having opposed the war, uh, she worked for the British Council, wanted to be a human shield, but then she ended up as a governor. Uh, it's a fascinating story, but she talks about how what she calls the the moustaches and the beards came together. So the moustache, the classic sort of symbol of the Saddam regime and the, the beards being, uh, you know, the jihadists. Now, they, they did come together. So people who had this illusion uh, that was untrue, certainly towards the end, that somehow Saddam was, uh, it was a secular regime. Towards the end, he was using faith to mobilize. And uh, so those Sunni <coughs> officers of his army and the new Sunni insurgents, they did align. And that was the, the growth of Al-Qaeda. Uh, and then you had the growth of ISIS. Now that came from, see, again, a constant pattern here is that um, America does not want to engage in long-run struggles and wants to get out as soon as possible. And it's understandable because 
Americans were becoming more and more critical of their interventions, which are expensive uh, and cost lives. And uh, I remember being in Boston in 2007, and there was a demonstration of veterans and asking this bloke with all his medals, well, you don't think that there's a job to do in Iraq? He said, now, why do we always have to do it? I mean, why can't the UN do it? Well, the UN has no real power. I mean, America's power. But the problem here is that um, America wanted to get out of Iraq as soon as possible. And, you know, there was an agreement that it would withdraw its troops by the end of um, 2010, I think. Uh, there had been a surge which had, with Iraqis, um, you know, defeated al-Qaeda and sort of ended that civil war, which was very brutal and led to lots of displacement and people. Uh, the, the map of Baghdad, uh, the ethnic map of Baghdad changed and so on. But they got out too quickly, and this gave <clears throat> the green light to um, essentially sectarian uh, Shia uh, Prime Minister, who I'd met in 2008, to go for the Sunnis and to rat on the agreements that it had. And, well, basically that led to quite a lot of young Sunnis thinking that if they had a choice between Baghdad, which was a barrel-bombing Fallujah, and um, putting them under a lot of pressure, and ISIS, they choose ISIS or Daesh, and, and that came to be. And uh, so then uh, you fast forward to 2014, and you have the capture of Mosul within hours by a very small force. And that means that there are a lot of people on the ground who acquiesced in this, and the conscripts ran away. I mean, I went to uh, Kirkuk a couple of weeks after that, which had been saved, uh, by the Peshmerga, the Iraqi army had left. I spoke to the governor, and he said he fled in tears, changed into civilian uniform. But the, the Kurds and the Peshmerga held Kirkuk, and they held, you know, resistance against Daesh for three long years whilst the Iraqi army got his act together. And again, you know, Daesh were very close to where I used to live. Uh, they were 20 miles away from uh, Bill. And if they'd gone into Kurdistan, they'd have been slaughtered. And, um, but the, the Kurds resisted. They did us all a great favour. And they resisted, and they resisted successfully after crucial air support from Britannia and the coalition. Yes, I mean, I think, so what, what this refers to is the big um, hoo-ha about whether or not the uh, British, the RAF should have supported the Kurds in 2014, mm -hmm. and the RAF did. I later went again to Kirkuk on the front line, a couple of miles from Daesh, and, and the Kurds were saying, look, we've got the RAF tornadoes here. There's two of them. We need a couple more. And they were critical. They were critical in the liberation of Kobani, which is a Kurdish city in northern Syria, uh, which was menaced by Daesh, and yet there was this big debate uh, in December 2015, I think, um, where basically Hillary Benn held the floor and argued that support for um, the Kurds was 
absolutely in line with Labour's anti-fascist traditions, sitting next to Jeremy Corbyn, who voted the other way, and eventually, for other reasons, Hillary Ben was sacked. But Ben said that he was a Ben, but not a Benite, uh, uh, and uh, was absolutely right. And, um, you know, he, he, it's shameful that uh, parts of the hard left, you know, have forgotten how important it is for a military force to be used to support the Kurds, and it was absolutely essential. Because there does seem to be a pattern of, you know, we talk about the kind of left as sort of a homogenous blob, but that's really not the case. You know, in Northern Ireland, it wasn't the case. In Iraq, it wasn't the case. And actually, while there might have been, you know, overwhelming kind of at the time, you know, rejection of the, the invasion, after the invasion, you had, you know, left-wing unions supporting the trade union movement in Iraq, trying to work with Democrats um, and democratic socialists and trade unionists in Iraq. And then later on, there were left-wingers who would support military support for the Peshmerga and support for the Kurds. I think I do remember the vote. We were already providing air support for the Kurds and the Iraqi army against ISIS. And then that was the vote on whether our planes, our tornadoes should cross into the border and bomb ISIS in Syria. And and, and for some reason, you know, this, this land border that was didn't exist anymore was something quite profound and there was a big split in the Labour Party in part in partly because Jeremy Corbyn was then the Labour leader. And it became a bigger thing that probably was going to be before. But there was a vote, I think, in twenty fourteen on whether we send air support to Iraq on whether that's given the green light. I saw that Jeremy Corbyn had voted against that. And when I was having a, a chat with John Woodcock on a on a previous podcast recording, we were, you know, making the point that actually, you know, our political opponents, they are in the vast majority, in most cases, they, they want to do right, they want to do good, and they are not morally wrong. And, you know, we we, we make mistakes or we make policy decisions that have bad and quite devastating impacts. And we try not to be, both of us saying it's important not to be black and white. But with something like that, when it was so obvious that here is a jihadist death cult or going to do the most horrendous things if Erbil fell, if Kurdistan fell, the, the treatment of the Kurds have been horrific. Here we could send our tornado planes and prevent it. Well, that's what the experts would be saying in the Foreign Office. To then vote against that, just to me, seems almost morally questionable. And actually, that's something I never really want to get into with describing my political opponents in those terms. But I couldn't help feel that way. Was there... Did you have, did you have that similar sense of anger that the, the Kurds were going to be betrayed? 
Well, look, yeah, I mean, in the end, those who voted against using uh, the RAF in 2014 uh, and uh, then uh, 2015, um, they, they were fairly irrelevant. And I mean, it's up to them. Uh, I, I can't see any objection to the use of military force for such limited purposes. And uh, from when it was described as don't attack Syria, no one was attacking Syria. They were attacking a specific group. Yes, uh, the border. I mean, ISIS boasted that the Sykes-Picot Agreement had sort of got rid of the border, had, had been sort of demolished, uh, the border had been demolished, a point that Hillary Benn made in his speech. Uh, he quoted the UK high representative of the KRG that the border between the two was immaterial and that there was a need for uh, military action. Uh, otherwise, you know, the worst would happen. And the worst did happen because, you know, the Yazidis uh, faced genocide. I've been to Yazidi camps. And, and also so many people have fled from Mosul. I mean, uh, at one point, 29% uh, of the population of Kurdistan was people who... Yeah, I guess that's one thing, that's one point I'd, I'd miss, that the, um, the genocide of the Yazidis at Mount Sinjar had already taken place the fall of Mosul had happened the outcomes weren't something that was purely hypothetical or if if ISIS reached these regions these populated locations this is what was going to happen we already knew we'd already seen the worst so then to to reject those those proposals to support the Kurds I think the reason why I can talk passionately about this was it that something that happened when I was kind of politically conscious yeah sure um you were only 11 in 2000 yeah so um yeah I was gonna currently in in 2022 what what do you think the future holds for Iraq and for Kurdistan in particular oh, okay <laughs> well I said there's a big question. So, I mean, when, when I sort of became, I'll go back a step or two. I mean, I remember one day waking up in Erbil and seeing uh, uh, Owen Jones had condemned um, Alistair Campbell, who'd been on a big march to have a second referendum on Brexit. Well, you ignored the last march, and uh, you and Tony Blair opened the gates to hell. Now, I, I was in Erbil at the time, which is a lovely city in the Scottish province, uh, but it's safe and quite dynamic. And I thought to myself, no, this is just wrong. I mean, and the problem is that this is not good history because you can argue that the gates to hell in Iraq were opened when the British forced the Kurds into Iraq. Because then for decades they were treated as second-class citizens, demonized, discriminated against, and that led to an industrial genocide, which we persuaded the commons to recognize as a genocide. And genocide is a very specific term. It's not just lots of nasty things happening. It is an attempt to deliberately eliminate a people in part or in whole. And that is exactly what happened. So the gates of hell were opened a lot earlier. They were closed in the main for the Kurds by John Major's actions in 1991. 
uh, they were closed to another degree by the invasion in 2003 because it got rid of a monster who, you know, some of the things he did were just absolutely appalling. Now, the problem is uh, you can argue about what caused the failures of the occupation, what led to an insurgency, a civil war, and so on. I mean, I don't wish to be blase about a place I've lived in and been to many times, but I suppose uh, there, there perhaps was an inevitability about there not being a smooth transition from decades of fascism to a democracy. Uh, with all the, the tensions that have been suppressed, exploding, and without an indigenous political class who could navigate these tensions because they were exiled, they had to come back, they didn't know their own country. And yet, there have been some positive changes. So you've had several transfers of power between different parties imperfectly. You've had the construction of a constitution in 2005, again, very imperfectly because it's great in theory, but doesn't work in practice. And the problem, as I think a Kurdish foreign minister said, that Iraq is not a failed country. It's not even a country. So the question marks about the future of Iraq are about the ability to put 60% Shias, 20% Kurds, and 20% Sunnis together. Uh, it's an open question as to whether that will work. Now, it's taken them a year uh, since the last elections to put together a government. Uh, that's only just happened. Uh, there were very, very big problems between Erbil and Baghdad because... Is a long and complicated story, uh, but basically there's been uh, lawfare and warfare against the Kurds by Iran and the Shia militias and the so-called Constitution, a Supreme Court, which is not part of the Constitution, which is trying to outlaw uh, Kurdistan's independent energy resources. That hasn't happened. It's still going on. It's a bargaining chip. Perhaps it could be withdrawn. But you now see the huge power of Iran. Now, one of the criticisms of the invasion of uh, Iran is that it's enabled Iran to be uh, a, a much more influential Iran. And it is influential. And it maybe is also in its last days. I mean, it's impossible to know. Yes, I said, by, by the time this podcast comes out, it could be a very different region. Yeah, I mean, so I'm working with the Iranian Kurds for some years, and <coughs> I've seen them uh, in person uh, in their camps, and um, the hope now, since the murder of uh, Maza Amin, Gina is her real name, but it's Kurdish, so she can't officially use it, in, and the, the oppression of the Kurdish areas of Iran, there is a revolution now happening, uh, led by women who have, well, have nothing to do with the bigots uh, and the militarists who run um, Iran. Now, if they succeed, and I hope to God they do, then we could be talking about federal, democratic, and secular Iran. It's a fantastic civilization. I think the mullahs have run out of steam, but they have a big base. You know, they they cultivated that base in the religious police and the uh, uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards, and they have tried to put.
put their imprint all over the Middle East, and they are they've got their hands on the throats of Iraq, and they've got their allies in uh, Libya and Lebanon and Syria. They are a menace. They are a cancer. So if the revolution from below succeeds in and getting regime change from below, then actually there'd be quite big changes in the Middle East. And then what I've learned over the years is that uh, the smallest change in one part of the Middle East can have massive changes elsewhere. And the, the, there's not been a resolution of the fundamental conflicts uh, disputes uh, between the Kurds and Arabs, the Shia and Sunni, uh, in Iraq, but it can work because it's very difficult. I mean, I was uh, for, for Kurdistan to be independent, and I'm only talking about Iraqi Kurdistan. It's even more difficult for all the four Kurdistans to be one single nation, almost impossible. Um, never say never, but I don't see how that's going to happen. Iraqi Kurdistan's problem is very simple geography. It is a landlocked island, perhaps the only landlocked island in the world, surrounded by sharks. And Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. And none of those really wants the Kurds to be independent, because the Kurds are like the square peg in a round hole in the Middle East. Nobody quite understands them, they look down on them, but they're at the middle of it. And they have to survive this. Now, you ask what's going to happen there. I've seen it sort of go through a golden decade. They developed the oil and gas that's been there for centuries, but which was denied to them by Sadat. That gave them a great deal of wealth. And, and um, you know, the cities and the roads and the infrastructure were all vastly improved. The trouble with oil is that if it's the product that you rely on most, then they get 90% of their income, both in Iraq and in Kurdistan, then it suffocates other sectors and it suffocates um, enterprise. And that's, that's a problem. I mean, oil can fund militarist regimes and dictatorships, and there's no need to develop a civil society. Now, I think that Kurdistan knows that it cannot always rely on oil and gas. I mean, A, they will at some point run out. B, there's a question of whether or not there'll be demand. And of course, we are now confronting uh, climate change. And that affects Iraq. I mean, uh, water, uh, you know, falling rivers, uh, desertification, dust. It's a very polluted place that I have lived in. And they have to diversify. And that means agriculture and tourism and light industry for their own good. And there were some Kurds at the beginning saying, look, the last thing we mean is oil, because that never ends well. But nonetheless, you know, 45 billion barrels of oil also provides a lot of money for all the things you want. But it's not very safe and sustainable, so they do have to diversify, and they do have to reform uh, their politics, which is too top-down. And... They have democratic aspirations. They have aspirations for uh, equality of women. It's much better than the rest of Iraq and much better than most of the rest of the Middle East. But it's very much a man's world. Mm. And there are no sort of formal bans on women doing this and the other, but there aren't that many in high positions, and there have to be more. 
it's often said that the the curve's only friend is the mountains, I guess. The mountains and Gary Kent. <laughs> if, 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 um, if someone is listening to this podcast and is, would like to learn more about Rafi Kurdistan and how they could possibly show solidarity and support to civil society in Kurdistan, how do you think would be the best way for them to go about it? I think we've talked quite a bit about, I think, how how left-wing internationalist politics can be done well in showing solidarity to those with democratic aspirations abroad and, and how it can be done badly. What would you say for someone who wants to support the Kurds? Let me think about that one. Um... I think I think what I'd say is that um, uh, there is an, an organisation right at the moment. I mean, maybe there should be. Maybe that's something to develop. And the diaspora here and the KRG itself should be developed in ways that people can connect. I mean, I think I would encourage people to go there. It's relatively easy to get there. It's safe. Um, but what, what I say is that I mean, what, what I'd learn is that um, at the beginning lots of Kurds were saying look you got us into this mess you sorted out I, and, and only you know, last year I met an Iman who said oh well it's like Pico it's all down to you you're a superpower you know sort it out and we're not a superpower I mean thanks for thinking it but no we're not and uh, I think the thing is that they have to have agency they have to sort out their problems. They do have a big problem with corruption. Uh, but it's, it's sort of baked into how politics is done is that uh, it's called Worcester, and it's the idea which is a virtue that people should always look after their own families or tribes or clans. And it's uh, inimical to uh, democracy because, I mean, it, it, if there are jobs, they should be given to people who have the qualifications for them. And if you don't, if you give them to people who don't know how to do the jobs, then you're not going to develop those institutions. Uh, but I, I sort of increasingly realised that uh, the stuff that I'm doing, uh, have been doing with the all-party group, is not so much in solidarity with the Kurds, it's a British interest. It is a British interest that the Kurds um, have the agency to be better than they are now, because they are at the centre of the Middle East, and their success in spreading uh, religious pluralism, uh, women's rights, a more solid and sustainable economy will have ripple effects on the Middle East. And there's no reason why uh, the Middle East should be mired in this sort of uh, crisis forever. I mean, the center of civilization could one day be so much better, so much more powerful and it's in our interest to encourage that. I mean, and just as, you know, there was a time when uh, people didn't touch Northern Ireland because they thought it was intractable. Well, the Middle East is seen as intractable, but there are these hopes. So the hope is, uh, you know, the Kurdish Renaissance, which stalled its like whack-a-mole, you know, one crisis is got out of the way, another crisis comes up. Um, is stalled in the last few years because of ISIS, because of COVID, because of decline and their rise in oil prices. Um, 
Iran is a great hope as well. I mean, the, these battles are fought within. I am not suggesting uh, that liberal uh, interventionism means that you can explore democracy. Democracy has to be homegrown. But when there is a crisis, as there was in 91, uh, certainly, then, um, you know, we should be prepared to to help to prevent humanitarian disasters. And that was a brilliant thing that John Major did. So I haven't really quite answered your question because it's quite complex. Um, but I think to understand this, and then, you know, we talk about, I mean, I'm a Labour person, so we talk about Labour foreign policy. And I think the last five years of Corbyn and some years before that have sort of led to a situation where there's essentially a lot of um, isolationism in the guise of anti-imperialism uh, and that we shouldn't be involved. Um, I've noticed that, yeah, people, they support what we're doing to help Ukraine, but their heart's not really in it. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're horrified by it, but they don't quite understand the impact of a world in which America is not able to exert its power, and Russia and China are. I would, I would agree in that it's often, you know, we often have these kind of battles about, you know, whether liberal interventionism good, liberal interventionism wrong, morally. Often individuals like Owen Jones will point at say, look at the catastrophe of NATO's intervention in Libya. But one of these one of the issues with these debates is you, you never know how the alternate universe would have turned out. So we never know how far Gaddafi would have gone to cling to power? Would he have gone to the depths of Assad in Syria? Likewise, it's broadly seen as creating a vacuum in, in the Middle East that strengthened Putin's hand by not intervening in Syria over Obama's red lines and the continued horrific war crimes by Assad against his own people continued despite our lack of intervention. But then again, we never know how that intervention would have panned out in the long term. We don't have a crystal ball. Um, equally, with Iraq, we we don't know if the Arab Spring would have just suddenly stopped at the Syrian-Iraq border and we don't know what the impact that would have been. These are all kind of hypothetical. I do, however, feel like there, what you were saying, that there is a, a moral dimension to when a, a when a dictator is gassing his own people, like Assad in Syria, there should be a space for humanitarian intervention. And, and actually, often the voices, the experts at the, of the region if those who should be listened to, you know, not not the the ones who are living there at the time. So listen to what Syrians are saying in in that conflict. Listen to the expert voices that are there who are living, who are experiencing it. Don't listen to the radicals abroad who aren't touched by it. And I think that's another kind of message that you've had that you said actually you want MPs to be a bit more engaged in these discussions. So. Kurdish voices who are experts in the region, Ukrainian voices who are experts in the region, 
Assyrian voices who are experts in living those war crimes could be heard a bit more and understood better by politicians. That's a clear version, but I mean, it, it needs to go through. I mean, you're right. So we, we have no idea what would have happened if there hadn't been an invasion uh, of Iraq. I mean, it's entirely possible uh, that um, uh, the regime, uh, Saddam would have died and it, it would have been taken over by his sons who were even more psychotic than he was. It's entirely possible that there could have been uh, an interstate war, that, uh, that Iraq could have descended into Syria, uh, type situation. I mean, the the intervention in Syria was difficult, uh, but the failure to uphold the red line uh, did signal the, the re-engagement of Russia and, and its brutality in Syria. And that was a big mistake, very big mistake, uh, not to punish that. I guess the, the fundamental is actually all these cases should be seen on a kind of taken on a case by case basis, and the idea of listening to voices from those countries affected are most paramount, and that goes back to the Northern Ireland conflict of actually your work of going over there and listening to the voices from different sides of the conflict, and that is what our politicians should be doing. I wouldn't make a claim to be, oh, let's not be ideological about these because I think we have to hold our hands up and say, yes, we are ideological. We want to see liberal democracy flourish, um, you know, as as democratic socialists and social democrats, um, you kind of have, you know, you do have your ideological biases. If there, if there are any overarching lessons from your experience in Northern Ireland and your experience in Kurdistan and looking at foreign policy successes and failures are there any overarching lessons that you think our current politicians can learn that would be my yeah final question all right okay well I mean I'd say uh first of all because you can't intervene everywhere doesn't mean to say you you uh don't intervene somewhere and, and essentially, Tony Blair's uh, Chicago Principles of 1999, written by Lawrence Friedman, are the best guide on this. Because, I mean, if we look at the situation of the Uyghurs in China, nobody's suggesting that we can intervene there. Unfortunately, uh, I mean, a genocide is taking place. Uh, that much is clear now for different reasons. Uh, there's a re-examination of uh, the uh, links with China. Uh, you know, the whole thing about deglobalization, reshoring, uh, cutting the connections. You know, there's a, now essentially a Cold War between uh, America and China. You know, there's great concern about microchips, you know, how much we're in hock, how much uh, control they give of China. Uh, uh, I think people should be sort of thinking about what, what the world would look like if China or Russia were world dominant. And that leads to uh, the second thing, which is... Um, and I've heard this directly so many times in Kurdistan, which is there is only one thing worse than an American intervention, and that's not having an American intervention. And and they are very concerned about how the troops were to be withdrawn and how that signaled uh, Shia prime minister to crack down on the Sunnis, and that led to disaster with the rise of Daesh. 
and uh, it led to uh, a more authoritarian approach by Baghdad towards uh, Bill. Because they never really understand the Kurds and they want this Arab Republic and they don't want a federal republic. Well, that's what the Constitution says it should be. Um, and, you know, I've heard it said from the highest levels that it doesn't matter. There are two and a half thousand American troops in Iraq. They're not in the combat role. If there were only one, it would make all the difference. And if America's not there, then terrible things can happen. Now, I mean, I'm not historically always been on the same side as America. I mentioned Chile. I mean, that was famously what got you into left-wing politics in the first place, opposing American intervention. America, well, again, I mean, I remember the deputy prime minister quoting Churchill, America gets it right in the end, having tried all the other options first. And I, I mean, I don't resile from, uh, you know, my, my, I was too young for this, but, you know, the Vietnam War was a disgrace. I mean, what, what the Iraqans did in Chile was horrific. It wasn't entirely down to them. There were other problems as well. Uh, the, the, the state of the left of domestic reaction, but, you know, that's another debate. I'd recommend that people read Ralph Miliband's essay uh, in Socialist Register on Chile in 1973. It goes through all of that. Um, so America's not very evil, but it can be a saviour. And one of the problems we face now is, well, there's every possibility that America won't be a democracy uh, in a few years' time. And um, then the Europeans <clears throat> are going to have to work out how they can protect themselves and how they can protect their allies. And that's the final thing, is that um, everybody... There's nothing wrong with being ideological. I'm, I'm a social democrat, so obviously I'm going to be more supportive of social democrats and those who support women's rights and who want transparent, um, dynamic economies with good public services. I mean, that's just, I think, what is the right thing to do. Um, I can't impose it on everybody. Um, but I think the crucial thing is to choose your allies and to choose your friends. And now one one of the books I mentioned, I did a, an essay for Labour Friends of Israel, which your listeners can look up on uh, thanks to Mr. Google. And uh, there's it quotes uh, a very good pamphlet uh, by Open Labour. They're written by Harry Pitts on... Uh, what was wrong with Corbyn's foreign policy. And I also quote, there's an American uh, political scientist called Paul and uh, Michael Walzer, who wrote a fantastic essay, Can There Be a Decent Left, in 2002 after 9-11. And uh, then a book, uh, Towards the Left Foreign Policy. And basically what he's saying is, choose your friends. And what we've got to get away from is this idea that all military force, that the only good things that a, 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 an imperialist country, if you like, like America or Britain can do is to welcome people to its shores. Well, most people do not want to leave their shores, but they, they are feeling that they have to because the conditions in their own country are so bad. Now, we can't rampage around the world and change everything. But when there is a crisis, when there's a humanitarian emergency, it is, and there is a call for it, uh, then with the various conditions laid down in the Chicago principles, yeah, I think that yeah, an extreme is that we can um, use military force and, and also we have to protect ourselves.
and the success of Daesh would have been a disaster for us. So the Kurds were our front line in preventing the further rise of a movement that would definitely want to kill people in the street here. Mm. So, so that's what the calculations are about. It's about our security. And military force is a part of that, but it's not the only part. Yeah. The other part is capacity building, with international development, is the use of higher education. I just think, you know, almost to sum up, I just wish actually I feel and I would hope that those engaging with this podcast who are, you know, I'd say broadly people kind of on the left who are similarly social democrats and there might be people further to the left or more further to the right but actually the fundamental is the safety and security of the western alliance and britain shouldn't be taken for granted and actually everything we hold dear is built on our liberal democracy and our freedoms so that's one and then secondly those who are Social Democrats abroad, Democratic leftists abroad, they should be chosen as our allies and choosing them as allies doesn't necessarily mean that you are you endorsing imperialism because I think too many on the left shrug their shoulders towards foreign policy debates. They are maybe reflexively isolationist, which I can understand if you were kind of someone brought up in my generation I think these things go in and out of fashion but I just hope for a little bit more of a critical eye from those who are not of a certain sect of the left who um, say neither Washington nor Moscow or who are overtly supporters of Putinist Russia or the current Chinese government if you are kind of a democratic leftist, actually, you should be a supporter of, of liberal democracies, what sustains them, what is in their vested interest, and also support those with democratic aspirations abroad. And just take that as your kind of the way to navigate foreign policy matters and actually just pay a bit more attention to what some of your comrades might be saying that different with that and actually have somewhat more of a critical eye on foreign policy matters. And I think that cultural change could lead to a lot of positive outcomes in the left. We won't be seen so mad. <laughs> really? I don't know. I, I, I just feel actually that's, that's, the best, that's kind of the best way forward um, when it comes to what the general public think is about foreign policy. I think actually most of them are reflexively isolationist, but actually I just think there does need to be more critical thinking of the left and actually what would the world look like if the United States wasn't the powerhouse and Russia and China were. What would what would that look like and is that something that we'd like to see? Um, no. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. Thank you. Um, um, thank you, Gary. For me, that was me, quite badly trying to su summarise some of our chats. Um, I'm sure there's other things, lots of things we didn't really cover. I think we covered the two 
kind of major topics in in your life, and I'm sure you have many more stories about life in Westminster and the things that you've you've seen up close in in the Labour Party and beyond. Um, but I really thank you for taking this time to have a chat with me. Um, hopefully, we'll we'll have another chat again soon. Get more of your insights on a future podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I've been very lucky. Uh, I've been working in part of thirty five years. Uh, done quite a lot, I think. I've been very lucky to travel to uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland and Iraq and and Kurdistan so much. I think just my last point is the thing that I, I'm one of the things I'm most proud of is um, that I helped to overturn the. This is going to sound rather mundane. Uh, the blanket ban on the use of mobile phones in hospitals. It was banned. You couldn't use mobile phone. There were companies that charged a fortune for TV and phone services. And there was no reason why mobile phones couldn't be used in most parts that, of the hospital. That's crazy. When was this ban overturned? Uh, about 15 years ago. And I, I helped do it. And because when it was questioned, yeah, there, there may be some parts of hospitals with equipment where it's unwise to use mobile phones. But if you go into a hospital now, most people can use their mobile mm. phones. When my dad was dying in hospital, I could talk to him. Mm. And and I thought that that was... I'm most proud of having helped do that with Sharon Hodgson, who got that through. And I you know, no longer remember the details, but it no longer exists because it was challenged. And and so that's one small reform that I'm very pleased with. I'm now... Uh... And I feel somewhat guilty that we we haven't covered some of your domestic policy successes because there, I'm, I imagine there's plenty in 35 years of Parliament. Perhaps that will be for our third part of the podcast. But thank you, Karen. Thank you. Time for a drink. Indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, listen without the adverts and hear bonus episodes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash steppingoutofline. That's www.patreon.com slash steppingoutofline. If you want to find out more about Gary and what he's getting up to, you can check him out on Twitter at Gary Kent. That's at Gary Kent. And if you want to find out more about what Leo's up to, then make sure to check out his Twitter, at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. I hope you listen to the next one.